my name is Andrew Talkov. Uh, I'm the head of program development at the Virginia Historical Society, and it's um, again my pleasure to introduce our next speaker. Dr. Roy Sawyer is retired managing director of Biofarm UK Limited, a leech research institute in Wales, which means that he got the most frequent flyer miles to come and talk to you today. His fascination with leeches dates from his boyhood in what he described as leechy Sumter County, South Carolina, which eventually led him to experts at the University of Wales, where he earned his PhD. It was there that Roy wrote his magnum opus, Leech Biology and Behavior. A, an international bestseller. <laughs> Biofarm launched in 1984 with a $60,000 British government loan, not only sells leeches, but also harvests leech saliva, which makes an excellent anticoagulant. Roy is founder and curator of the Medical Leech Museum, a private facility in Charleston, South Carolina. And in his book, America's Wetland, An Environmental and Cultural History of Tidewater, Virginia and North Carolina, published by the University of Virginia Press, Roy delivers an eco-history of this unique waterland whose wind-driven tides cover a rich human and natural past. By examining the impacts of humans on this environment and vice versa, Roy uh, reveals how our alarming short-sightedness has produced a fragile and endangered present and suggests ways in which we may still salvage them. So please uh, join me in welcoming Dr. Roy Sawyer, who will speak to us on the topic, An Eco-History of the Chesapeake Bay, The Long View. Well, it looks like I have the distinction of being the last speaker. And I, I will forgive you if I see some nodding uh, heads out there. But what I'd like to talk to you about is the uh, eco-history of the Tidewater. Now, that's the um, short title. The long title is more of a mouthful, America's Wetland and Environmental and Cultural History of Tidewater, Virginia, North Carolina. The problem is there is no word tidewater that conveys meaning to people. Uh, I would wager that most people, perhaps all people in this room, when they think of the tidewater, they think of the Norfolk area. And in fact, that's just the top of the iceberg. This is a book which um, uh, covers many topics. Uh, uh, two of my favorite uh, chapters in the book, one is the African-American experience, which lies outside uh, today's conference. But the other one is um, the uh, Ice Age Enclave, which is wh basically what I'll be talking to you uh, today, uh, par partly so. Uh, my, uh, uh, Andy uh, uh, introduced, I don't know where he got some of that information, but uh, he, he must have done some homework to, uh, to figure that out. But he, what I didn't say is that I'm originally from the Tidewater area. Now, uh, let me first define what I mean by the tidewater. Uh, the tidewater is, uh, for my purposes, and, and, uh, and I having um, 
delved into the subject for some time, I think this is a, a natural unit. It, uh, it goes, the northern part is the James River, and there are reasons that I've picked that as the cutoff. And it goes essentially uh, to the western boundary, I-95, and down here at the White Oak River. This region to the uh, east of the I-95, or basically east of the fall line, forms a, a natural unit which is, uh, has certain characteristics in, in common throughout. But as you'll see, Virginia is just part of the tidewater. All this is also tidewater, but very few people uh, go there. It's one of these uh, great unknowns, and I'd like to raise awareness of it. Uh, how did I get interested in uh, writing the book with my background in leeches? Uh, naturally, I got interested in leeches there in, uh, in the Tidewater region. But um, it, it grew quite naturally. I'm originally from this area, this place on the Alligator River. There's a little community called Gumneck. And as you'll see, it is smack in the middle of the whole region. Uh, I'm very lucky. I uh, have my grandmother's old restored house, which borders the Alligator River wildlife refuge, and I get down there once or twice a year, and I used to live there when I was a, a, a boy, and I've been associated with that area for uh, all my life, so I do know, I know Gumnack area well. Now, in terms of uh, uh, why I wrote it, the, the answer is this. One day, and I suspect this has happened to many of you, perhaps uh, all of you at one time or other, you've gone to a certain place and you've asked yourself, what happened here in the past? And this is exactly what uh, crossed my mind when I was in Gumneck. I said, I wonder what happened here in years past. And then you start asking yourself, how far back do you go? Uh, I personally can observe on the order of 50 years changes in Gumneck. Then you ask yourself, how, how much further back? And very, we're very lucky here because the Roanoke Colony, the Lost Colony, was here. That's on the order of 500 years ago, 428 years, uh, I think, to be exact. But um, you're obviously aware uh, that um, Thomas Harriet and John White uh, were very good documenters uh, at, at the colony. They did the first natural history in the Western world. And it's very detailed, they illustrated it, uh, or White did. So it's amazing what, uh, what we know about that time. So we're very fortunate, one of the earliest places that we can go back with some documentation, 500 years. Then what happened before that? How far back do you go? And I go back to 15,000 years. And this is where we bring in this subject that uh, Dr. Roundtree mentioned, Cactus Hill, and its significance to the Tidewater region. Uh, I attach a lot of significance to that, and I also, uh, as you'll see, it is a part of the uh, Tidewater. The, the Albemarle uh, is the center of it. Right, so what I was uh, asking myself is uh, what changes have occurred here, what influences the, the tidewater. And I, after all this study, uh, it come up with three things. There are 
the influence, the fundamental influences, the Gulf Stream, the hurricanes, and the human involvement. The, and they do, um, the, these things do interact, as, as I'll explain it to you. Now, if we go back this 50-year period, I remember it so well when I was a, a, a boy in Gumneck, and you uh, would barely recognize the place today. It's depopulated, for one thing, but the one change I want to uh, uh, bring to your attention is what I will come to in the end, and that is salinity change. Gumneck used to be a, a freshwater place. It was a freshwater paradise. It is now uh, being influenced to a great extent by salinity uh, penetration. And I have reason to uh, point, point a finger of where it, that uh, salt is coming from. So um, this is from a, a, a book from Riggs and Ames. Uh, Riggs has just come out with another book recently, I think, on the, the rising water of the, of the eastern uh, section. But you can see this is the watershed that contributes to, uh, to, to the wide water, uh, the uh, uh, tidewater region. He points out the, the mountain, the Piedmont, coastal plain, we all know that, but I'll put forward that there's a fourth region in our case, and that is that the Piedmont region itself, that region I just uh, outlined uh, to you, is a fourth region. It has certain characteristics unlike the other. For one thing, the tidewater is a region which is at or very near sea level. And one of the uh, predominant forces is the influence of uh, wind-driven tides. That's where the tidewater uh, comes from. It has other characteristics, uh, which I'll come to. But you see here in Virginia, uh, not all of the water flows into the Albemarle and Pamlico region. Some of it doesn't, but we will claim uh, south of the James River, including the Norfolk area. You see, the Norfolk area is just, a, just a, a relatively minor. In terms of population, it is tidewater, of course, but in terms of geographic area, it is far from it. It's just the top of the iceberg. Oh, the one thing I'm going to... Uh, with deference to um, Stephen Osmond, I'm going to say a few remarks which are not uh, complimentary about the Burge Line. Uh, Burge Line has had uh, some negative effects, and, uh, and I think, uh, number one, it has cut the tidewater completely artificially in such a way I, th I think it's been to the demise of the tidewater in general. So Burge Line, we would have been better off without it. Or another way of putting it, the tidewater really should be one unit. It should be a, it, it's a biological unit, geological unit, and it should be a one political unit. And uh, we will, uh, I'll give several reasons, some very old and some uh, modern, of why we're suffering because of uh, Bird's Line. And that is the, the border between North Carolina and Virginia, of course. The tidewater lies on top of sediment. Most of the rest of the state, of course, you go down, you hit rock pretty soon, but it, this is not the case in the tidewater. Sometimes you're talking thousands of feet of sediment. This is, a, this is a, a, an image which I much greatly uh, uh, like because it doesn't have bird's line in it. It shows... <laughs> It shows it like it really is. Um, another characteristic of the, uh, the tide water 
is that it's got these peculiar lakes. They're called Pocosin Lakes. Um, the largest natural lake in Virginia, Lake Drummond, in the middle of the uh, Dismal Swamp. And then here in this, this region here, which was called the Alligator Dismal Swamp. Nobody knows about it, or a lot of you uh, have never been there. But it's actually far larger than the Dismal Swamp. You can tell by the area. This is just wild and woolly in, uh, by most people's measurement. But look, Lake Matamuskeet, that's the largest natural lake in North Carolina. Lake Phelps, the, lar the second largest natural lake in North Carolina. Natural lakes are quite rare in North Carolina and Virginia, but here they are all low, uh, lying in this uh, area, uh, which we call the Tidewater. I'm going to come back to uh, Lake Matamuskeet because even though I've known it all my life, it's only fairly recently that I'm beginning to recognize the significance of it in terms of eco-history. So our reference point is uh, right here, Gumdeck. That's where I lived as a boy and I've been associated with all my life. That's the Alligator River. Another reference point is uh, the Cape Hatteras. You all know about it's, and then uh, up here, Cacti Cactus Hill is somewhere uh, on the Nottoway River. And three, th three reference points. Um, I should point out another feature here. If I, I can't quite see it from here, but you can maybe see it. Um, um, there's a line. Can you make it out? Yes, it is a, that's the Suffolk, Suffolk uh, scarp. It is an old beach. It's about 350 million years old. And it tells us something, that um, the seawater was much higher at one time. So we think we have problems now. Uh, it, it can get worse. So, uh, so that tells us one thing. The beach has been much higher. But at th the other side of the coin is the water has been much lower. And uh, especially during the Ice Age where the water was uh, captured in the ice, um, the beach was about 50 miles east of, Cape, uh, of um, Nags Head. Right, uh, just a brief things. I couldn't resist this picture, which I've always thought the, the white cedar. Uh, uh, Stephen told us about the white cedar and its uh, significance. Well, there were great, great stands of it. Uh, they've nearly all been cut down. There are some remaining, especially around the, the Alligator River uh, Refuge. Um, now, one thing I, I would, uh, I think I can say with um, s uh, a certain degree of certainty, the oldest living tree, possibly the oldest living thing, occurs in the Tidewater region, uh, east, of the uh, east of the Rocky Mountains. 800-year-old cypress trees occur in the, the, the Nottoway River Basin, that's in Virginia. And uh, further south in North Carolina, there's one that was uh, 1,600 years old with the ring, ring trees. I mean, the, um, uh, re reading the, the, the rings on the, uh, the tree, you can determine the age of these things, and it is incredible how old. So you can see that I'm talking that the Tidewater is a very, very old uh, region. Um, we have these uh, very strange animals, and I, I, uh, uh, Dr. Osborne was uh, very uh, good about that. I, I couldn't resist this picture. <laughs> now, this is around 1923. 
The poor old bear, I don't know, understand the logic myself of uh, killing the bear and being proud of it. But um, when I was a boy, there were definite bears around in, uh, in Gum Neck in that Alligator River area. But there are far, far more bears now than there were then. Now, when I was a, a young, you saw, once in a great while, you saw a bear. But um, now, um, you see them all, all over. I, was, I remember lying in, my, uh, in the bed looking out the window, and this bear just went by. Uh, it's, it is a wildlife wonderland. Now, the why the bears, a recurring theme. Why are bears more common now than then? If you want to know about an animal, understand its food. I, I speak as a zoologist. That would be a generalization. There's much more uh, plentiful food now than then. Uh, they, there's a lot more farmland. They grow a lot of corn now, which they didn't do when I was a boy. Uh, it's, also, it's also a region of um, uh, other animals. Um, the Black Panther, you go down and drive around, you ask local people, oh yeah, Black Panthers live here. And you, I think we all poo-poo that. Uh, I certainly would poo-poo it literally, but there's more to it than, here is an animal which was captured alive in the region. Now, it is black. It's a wild animal. It has been diagnosed as a black coyote these things have adapted, so the coloration has uh, changed. I mean, that is the case. In my book, I do describe, uh, I, do, I go to considerable detail about the, the history of these animals. One chapter just devoted to the history of uh, the various um, animals, including the cougar. Um, and I'd like to show you uh, an animal that doesn't exist, which was killed in the alligator swamp. It was an 88-pound female. It had lots of fat in its tissue and it had a small mammal in its gut. It was living happily. It was, uh, it was under uh, thriving conditions. It was not something that uh, somebody threw out along the way. Or if, he, if they threw them out, it survived and is doing quite well until he met uh, a human. Alligators, we again, the recurring themes, alligators, uh, I can say about the, the Alligator. There's no historic record of the alligator living ever north of the Albemarle Sound. It, it lives there now. You find the occasional ones, uh, Merchant's Pond State Park, Gates County uh, has some, and other places that uh, Stephen talked about. This is another interesting uh, pl uh, plant, the, the dwarf uh, uh, palmetto, sable miner. Um, it reaches its northern limit. And the point here is this is the distribution of the uh, dwarf palmetto along the east coast. You see this coastal strip going up. This is virtually the same distribution as the alligator. I should say that the alligator, which uh, reaches uh, about that point. That's the northernmost point of any crocodilian in the world. It's a very special kind of animal, I think, and it's been uh, isolated in, uh, genetically for some time, but it seems to be doing quite well. Along the Alligator River, it's named the Alligator River for a good reason. 
Now, what I'd like to um, emphasize about the, uh, the tidewater is that it is a, a, there is a thermostrip where animals and plants live much further north than they should. And that's for this reason. I attach great significance to this, uh, to this image. You can see here is the tidewater. And here we see the, the Gulf Stream, the warm Gulf Stream coming up. And you can see w when you're standing in Gumneck, you ask uh, what, what influences are going. You can't tell when you're standing. You can live a lifetime in that really well. You have to stand back and take a longer view and more distance. You can see better from a distance. And this is what's happening to that, to that region and has happened for a very long time. Now, in terms of hardiness zones, you know, those, uh, how much frost it gets in the winter, um, some uh, maps will show Cape Hatteras as being a hardiness zone 10. Most of the region here the, is uh, 9, and up around Virginia Beach, Norfolk, and, uh, 8. Now, 10 is down, like down here in middle, south middle Florida. So it's far warmer than it should be. And it explains why we have such unusual distribution of animals and plants uh, that far north. But if we stand back a bit further, we see, again, context. I think context is everything with eco-history, the long view. Stand back and ask more questions about, uh, see what's happening. Now I'm going to bring you news of a parallel universe where everything is reversed. And that is the, what's happening on the other side of the Atlantic. Because I live in Wales, I, uh, I began to see things I didn't see before. Now, a lot of people are not aware that on the west coast of Ireland, in, in Galway, there's a monument to Christopher Columbus. But it's not to his discovery of 1492, it's 1477. 15 years earlier, he says that he, um, he wrote in his notebook that there on the west coast of Ireland, he, he found solid evidence that there was land beyond the Atlantic. And that's because all kinds of strange things from another world wash up regularly on the west coast of Ireland. And you can see why. It's, uh, it, it's natural. Now, anyone standing there with a degree of, uh, of insight can find, interpret it as evidence. And Christopher Columbus seems to have reas reasoned that yes, it, there's something there. Another thing about this uh, circulation, you know about the eels, Sargasso Sea and going up to Europe and so on. Um, they make a cycle. The, 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 the fry and so on, they just float along in the currents. Well, there are other things. Jellyfish make their way. They do the same thing, go up. Well, because of that, jellyfish, the west coast of Ireland, which is uh, virtually uh, reptile-free, there is one lizard, but certainly no snakes, they have lots of turtles. Um, the, the sea turtles, you won't think of the west coast of Ireland as being rich in sea turtles, but it is, and it's because of the jellyfish. And all these animals I'm telling you about, they make a grand cycle going this way. All that's been going on for a very long time. Okay, let's, let me look. This is the <coughs> Ireland. You see, 
the heart in those zones are very similar. You've got the, most of Ireland is in the, the nine zone, like the tidewater. Eight, like Virginia Beach. But look down here. Ten on the extreme southwest of Ireland. I, uh, I personally find that tremendously interesting as a zoologist. Now here, look at the right-hand side. You see this is the same southwest uh, part of Ireland. And you see, when there was a very heavy snow, it stayed on the ground for a long time. See what didn't happen in this section? It stayed ice-free. And I want to bring your attention to this little island, the island Valencia. That's the European counterpart to Cape Hatteras. And uh, last summer I went there to have a look because I couldn't believe what I'd been told and read about, but sure enough, it is an amazing place. Look at the tree ferns, they're, they're huge. Literally a forest of tree ferns. Now who would have thought that in cold Ireland? Many of you have been to Ireland, I'm sure. But it is, uh, that little island is well worth a visit. And not just um, uh, those tree ferns. This is a special type of palm, uh, cord, cord, uh, corded line, corded line palm. Let's see if I can, you, you, yeah. Yeah, quarter line, that's the right. You see, this is a very old one. It's, it, this is frost sensitive, but you can see it, it lives there. In spite of these awful, awful winters we've been having in the recent years, they, they carry on. Let's go back to an area view of the British Isles. Again, we see what's happened. Uh, there's where I live in Wales. But uh, see, the southwest coast of Ireland is still relatively free. And if you go down to the France, it starts to be warmer again. So what's the significance? This is to what the lady was asking earlier about um, uh, when did man first come to uh, the, the new world. And I think this has some relevance personally. You see what's happened on the west coast of uh, uh, Europe. You see the, for one thing, oh, this, oh, this is the ice age. Uh, imagine all that ice that you saw frozen in is with the ice age, and you can see the ice came covered most of the British Isles, but not all, and the water level dropped. At this area, there was a civilization, the, or if you want to call it that, a group of people, the Salutrians, which had uh, very unusual uh, uh, projectile points and stuff. It's a center of great excitement uh, among those people, as the question came up today, earlier. But look, what I'm gonna point to you is the similarity for what's happening on this side. The water level was dropped. This, uh, the tidewater region is, I would put to you, is the, the center of things in the, in the same way that this was a center. This, this was the place, is a breadbasket at the time of the, uh, 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 the glacial maximum. There was a gradient from quite warm all the way up to the ice. You had the, the, the big mammals, the, the mammoths and mascodons and so on. But you also had other types of food which is uh, the key, I personally think, to living there at that time. Here is the Clovis point. You've heard of the Clovis people, you know, the Clovis first big argument. Uh, Dr. Roundtree would uh, discuss that uh, this morning. This Clovis point was found very near my place where I live in, uh, near the Alligator River. The Clovis people, 10, 12,000 years ago, would you say? 12,000 years ago. And what, um, what we're learning, that what, what has been learned uh, there at Cactus Hill, um, 
Joseph and Lynn uh, McAvoy and colleagues, they, I think they have been making tremendously interesting discoveries uh, myself, having learned about the, the Tidewater history, and I never knew where I was going to end up with this study, but I do see something here. Um, you notice Cactus Hill, which was uh, Solomon, uh, what, 12,000 or earlier? 17,000. And there is evidence of culture of people living there before the Clovis people. Uh, you probably have been reading the papers. I don't know if it made the news here, but it certainly made the news in Britain that uh, at the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay, the, uh, the uh, scallop fishermen dug up this, um, this projectile point, which is on the um, cover of a book by uh, uh, Stanford and Bradley, just, just came out. Really, really interesting uh, book, but it, it is the cover, what was found there. And of course, at that time, the, the, the water level was much lower. This was the Paleo Susquehanna River. Then you had the Paleo James River, the Paleo uh, Roanoke River, and so on. So they found evidence of people living way down here. Uh, I think the water level was uh, about 400 feet lower uh, then than, than now. Now, you see this Joan River connects to the Nottaway. This area is the uh, nursery bed of the largest uh, herring f uh, nurseries in the United States, if not a freshwater herring in the world. In the spring, great numbers uh, of herring come, and I dare say that the people at Cactus Hill were fully aware of that. October, November, the tidewater, like uh, Lake Manamesquite, is full of uh, incredible numbers of waterfowl. Now, if you were trying to survive through the winter, there's plenty of food. And I would, I would suggest that this was also true when people first came to, um, to this area, possibly via the ice, who knows, but uh, I think we're, uh, they're getting closer to figuring that out. But I would like to show you the parallel universe. The same thing is happening on the Irish side for the same reason. The birds are coming from the ice, coming down to overwinter, and it's food for people. Here, I, I mentioned the great numbers of uh, herring, and, and Dr. Rountree talked about the fishing and so on. The, the food, it was food. They came like clockwork, April and May. So th and that was probably the most vulnerable time for them to get food, because before the, the greenery comes out. And uh, so th there was plenty of food in the Tidewater region. But Parallel universe, there's Ireland. Very similar thing happening. So uh, just, just to summarize, the Gulf Stream, there's a transatlantic link, a very real link, uh, I believe, and it's a meaningful one. The, uh, a gradient, so even during the Ice Age, the ice cover probably uh, got approached the James River but south of the James River, there was a population growth of Clovis people. There was a lot of Clovis uh, projectile points found not only up around uh, Cactus Hill, but all around this, uh, especially the north area, the Albemarle. Uh, it's a, it, it was a population explosion. Quite unique, I think, in, uh, in the United States. And, and proudly so for us uh, people who claim to be from the Tidewater. 
Now, I've talked about the water. Now we talk about the hurricane. Just, just I'll quickly go through because time is a problem. But you see what happens. You know this from living here. Um, this area, the tidewater, is Hurricane Alley. It's regularly, every year nearly, it gets hit by tropical storms of varying intensities. And um, in my book, I go to considerable detail of tracking the history of the severe storms. And on average, about once every 50 years, there's what I would call a megastorm. And this is packed with so much energy, it changes the landscape. Most storms just come and they replenish the water. Without these storms, the tide water would be uh, relatively dry. Here's behind my grandmother's old house. Very typical scene. You've seen that sort of thing all the time. Here it is six months later. And what happens is uh, some years they don't get the water that they need. And it goes very dry. In normal years, the leaves fall down and becomes peat. This area, the Albemarle, has the largest peat deposits anywhere in the United States. And if you have two or three years without water, that is without uh, these tropical storms coming in, we're dependent on these storms. It goes dry and lightning before man came, but lightning was a, uh, would set the storm. It goes dry in the spring, lightning comes in the summer, and a storm uh, and a fire can start, and you will uh, be sorry because the, uh, the peat can burn for weeks and months or a year or more. And it can burn and burn and burn to, uh, in 1955, there was a horrible uh, fire in the Albemarle uh, Peninsula. It burned for many weeks, uh, or longer than that, but it was described in the New York Times as the South's largest fire. And I believe that probably was the case. It was a, an amazing fire. But because it happened where very few people live, very few people know about it, but the people in Norfolk knew it was there. They could see the, the, the smoke and so on going on. Now, another thing, when I first went to Britain, uh, it used to get awfully wet in the fall, September, and they used to call it the equinox gales. I now know why. It took me a long time to figure it out. It's the tail end of the hurricanes. And here is one particular storm, uh, Hurricane Charlie, August 1986. You see what happened? Direct hit on the tidewater. It made its way across, it hit the British Isles, and if memory serves, it caused more damage and death in, the, in Ireland than it did in America. A similar thing happened in um, uh, another year, let's see. Yes, Hurricane Debbie, ni September 1961, a very similar thing happened. Where the tidewater and Ireland direct connection. Most storms, of course, uh, uh, end up in the, the British Isles. That's why it's so wet. Uh, uh, it's an amazingly wet place. Um, you all know that Ireland's uh, got all this water. You see this gradient? Well, we have a, a mirror image again of the gradient of moisture deposition in the, and so on. Tremendous amount of peat for the same reason. Moisture locking in the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the organic matter so it won't decay. And uh,
Another thing about the storms, they always come in the fall. And this is the time of year when the birds migrate. So you say, so what? Well, here's for the third talk. The passenger pigeon has come up again. Now, this is a really, to me, a remarkable thing. This passenger pigeon was found alive in Tralee, Ireland in 1848. It had been washed, uh, it was swept across the Atlantic in a, in a storm. Found, it did die a few days later. It has been preserved. And I, on my way here, I went via Dublin, and I can confirm that specimen is still in existence. Since uh, 1848, more than 50 different species of birds have been found blown across the Atlantic. So it is a regular occurrence. It happens every year. And not only the, uh, the birds, butterflies and moths show up. S seeds of uh, orchids, microorganisms, spores, uh, fungal spores. And the, 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 the high in, uh, altitudes contain biology quite interesting biology. But um, I think this, uh, this one of the uh, passenger pigeon is especially interesting because of the subject that people have asked several questions about it. One gentleman asked about, uh, about it earlier, about the significance of the great numbers. Now, speaking as a zoologist, I would again say uh, to understand an animal, you need to understand its food. I think the great numbers of the passenger pigeon was due to a disturbed economy, uh, um, ecology, and that this uh, ecology was disturbed by the uh, Native Americans. Uh, I'm, of course, speculating. I dare say things like that with Dr. Roundtree present. <laughs> but um, I, think, uh, I think that uh, is very likely the case. One thing we do know, the passenger pigeons were in great numbers prior to Jamestown because it was documented in 1604 in a little colony in Maine, which didn't make it. Uh, I'll come back to, in terms of spores. I'll come back to the 1840s later about the potato blight. But um, let's go back to the season. This is 1933. It is probably the case that this was the most active hurricane season in the 20th century. And I'm sure the people, there was an amazing number of storms at that time, and I'm sure the people there were saying, oh my gosh, climate change. And, and they're right. It was an awful uh, change in their climate. Of course, this was the time of the Dust Bowl, you know, as um, Sarah was saying. And the uh, dieback of the eelgrass, it was worldwide. There was something happened about that time across the world. I talked about megastorms. One of these storms, uh, this one, September 1933, was the most powerful hurricane to hit the tidewater region in the 20th century. In my book, I go in considerable detail about what happened in that storm. I'm going to backtrack a little bit. This was 1933. Historically, uh, this happened, uh, great activity happened also in the 1840s. In 1846, for example, there was a mega storm which created Oregon Inlet and Catters, uh, uh, Hatters Inlet. Now, these, um, 
mega storms in 1942-1943, there was a, a succession of storms such that the people of the uh, Tidewater, the Albemarle region, were literally starving. There was a, there was a great famine. And I, I, I would r refer you to borrow a copy of my book and read that section on the famine, because very few people know about that. But it happened at a very similar time as the famine in Ireland, um, which we now know is due to excessive water or uh, uh, potato blight uh, took, took over. And um, somebody here may be able to uh, confirm what I'm going to say now, but apparently there was a potato blight in the Philadelphia area a year or two before it hit Ireland. So it, it seems to it possibly have gone from, uh, from America east. Let's go back even earlier to the 1580s. Now this was the time, of course, the Roanoke Colony, but it was also a time of great storm activity. Uh, Francis Drake had to, uh, he stayed there a few days because he was hit by some storms. And um, he later went, uh, made it back to England just in time for the Spanish Armada, what was that, uh, 1588. And most people, uh, know that the English beat the Spanish at the war. But in fact, what really happened was a great storm that knocked the Spanish fleet. Uh, uh, and there, are, there is a Spanish Armada Museum in the west coast of Ireland. It's well worth watch, uh, seeing that if you're in uh, the town of Derry. So the 1580s, tree rings. The Roanoke Colony <coughs> was during the most extreme drought in 800 years. And that was 1587-89. That's what the tree rings tell us. So it was a period, of unusual period. The Jamestown colony, it was a dry, and I think um, uh, Dr. Uh, Rantree also showed, actually showed the rings. It was the driest seven-year period in 770 years. So that period was quite different. To talk about climate change, they, they had it too. So climate change isn't a new subject. What may be new is whether man's causing it. Now, this is the Lake Mesquite. Notice its shape, very odd shape. It's, it's, and so is a very similar shape here. You see a oh, sh strange shape. Now, I'm going to try to explain that to you. During the... Uh, uh, 30s, they tried to drain uh, Lake Mesquite. They gave up in the end. But they did build this causeway. Uh, there are five conduits under this causeway. Uh, great uh, significance attached to observation of some local people, and I quoted in my book. What he recorded was during even small storms, the water, remember the storm was coming from the south to the north, and the winds, of course, are going initially this way. The water rushes to the west side of Lake Mesquite, and this goes virtually dry. Then as the storm goes to the north, the water goes the other way, and the water rushes the other way. So that can explain the, uh, why, why this uh, lake formed. Whether it formed because of some great fire in an earlier period, uh, it probably can be proven one day. But um, certainly Lake Mesquite uh, shows it's almost like a, a National Science Foundation experiment. Build a, 
and measure. Somebody could easily do a PhD here because it's, uh, it's considerable significance. And I would take it a step further. That Lake Madame Mesquite is a, a Carolina Bay in the making. That this is how Carolina Bays form. And of those who aren't aware of Carolina Bays, the, the East Coast from Southern New Jersey to South Carolina, there's some into Georgia. They have these weird oblong lakes, and they have the, a, a rim on one end, just like Lake Mount Mesquite and Lake Phelps and so on. So the, I think that is an explanation for how Carolina Bays form. A uh, lot of debate there, meteorites and all kinds of things, but uh, I think hurricanes cause them. They scour them out, and not just an ordinary hurricane. I think the megastorms can change the landscape. A corollary of this is that um, wherever you find Carolina Bays, you find an environment like the modern tidewater region today. In other words, there was a tidewater type of environment at one time or other from New Jersey down to, to toward Georgia. Here's a map, 1733, Mosley map. <coughs> this map is very much like the one that uh, we see that uh, was drawn during the Roanoke um, calling times. Uh, several things I want to point out. One is, that is the lake, Stumpy Point Lake. It was another Pocosin Lake, which doesn't exist anymore. It exists as a bay. Another thing, there are three inlets. Uh, and, and Dr. Osmond showed the Currituck Inlet, which made that infamous uh, bird line which cut the Great Dismal Swamp in two, <laughs> unbelievably. Um, and then there are new inlet, and there's another inlet, Roanoke Inlet. And I think it's Roanoke Inlet where the actual uh, voyagers went through. Since 1933, uh, 1733, these inlets, the, all three of them closed up one by one. The last one closed up in the great megastorm of 1828. So all these closed. Now, you notice Roanoke Island connected to the mainland, there was a marsh. The Roanoke colonists talk about this. They talked about the Indians coming in there and uh, as, as a, w a way of getting to them. But um, it is no longer there. There's a big channel there now. Because what happened is these inlets uh, are not inlets, they're outlets. So water, water was flowing out of these inlets. Now when the water came in from the Roanoke River, which is an enormous watershed, it, ha it had to go by this channel and it scoured it out. Also, this um, here, it's virtually gone now, but what was uh, Stumpy Point Lake is now a bay and I've been to it. And sure enough, it does have a rim on one side. I'm certain that it is a, another one of those uh, incipient Carolina Bays. Another Carolina Bay was found here, uh, Rocky Hawk, which has been dated at 30,000 years ago. So this is, all these things have been going on for a very long time. Ah, here's a important Virginia question. These uh, inlets closed up, 1728. I would put to you that they closed up because of the high degree of erosion coming down from the Chesapeake Bay, and that they came because of the farming practices. It had been 200 years that the farmers had been uh, 
uh, clearing their fields and so on. So all this sediment came. So although it was tr true that it was nature that closed the inlet, m it's quite possible that man is the one who uh, was, was a key factor there. Now finally, the, the subject of salinity. The, um, there's a canal here. This is the, uh, you might see it better on the, on the previous map. The Albemarle-Chesapeake Canal, which, uh, which goes up here, and you don't see it uh, all that well, but Great Lock Bridge, uh, Gate Bridge Lock, and you see the canal here. It was built, the canal was made in 17, uh, 1859. Well, they built several locks, not a lot of them, but these locks uh, were important. As soon as, soon as the, um, uh, I should backtrack, that when that last inlet in 1828 changed, the salinity changed, right? So uh, the, the bottom line is the uh, salinity changed when, when the inlet changed. They built a canal. They did away with this lock in eight, 1913. It, it created uh, salinity changes, which changed the water back to uh, brackish. Here's a uh, coin jock uh, salinity, and uh, I have to rush, but you see, when they made the lock, same thing happened here. This region here, alligator, pungo, no, there is no, there is no lock. You see what's happening. And this is why I'm claiming that uh, there should be a lock put on the alligator pungo canal because it's leading to salinity changes that I mentioned at the beginning. And uh, they're trying to uh, control the uh, salinity with these tags, but th the problem is, uh, there's the canal. Hurricane caused the backup of water through the Pongo. And uh, the alligator, the Albemarle Sound is going brackish because of that canal I put to you. There needs to be some attention to it. Right, summary, sedimentary land, that's what the tidewater uh, really means. It fluctuates east and west, so, it, so if the water does rise, as it looks inevitable, it's going to move the environment to the west. It's ancient and stable. The Pocosin Lakes are incipient uh, Carolina Bays and uh, transatlantic links with wind and water. Uh, I'll, I'll stop there then. Time is running out. Thank you very much. <laughs>